deep aspirations. Very big altruistic motivation. All mother sentient beings, especially those enemies of hate, instruct us on those who take off the path of liberation. They experience happiness, be separated from suffering, will quickly establish in a state of the most perfect and precious Buddhahood. All mother sentient beings, especially those enemies of hate, instruct us to harm those who could also have the liberation of the saints. They experience happiness, be separated from suffering, will quickly establish in the state of the most perfect and precious Buddhahood. All mother sentient beings, especially those enemies of hate, obstruct who harm me and those who create obstacle path to liberation distance. May they experience happiness, be separated from suffering, will quickly establish the state of the most perfect and precious Buddhahood. Of course, they'd be calm, wouldn't they, in here? Do you want me to get her, put her in? Sure, we'll see what happens. Okay. Continue. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Thus, until we achieve enlightenment, we perform virtuous deeds with body, speech, and mind. Until death, we perform virtuous deeds with body, speech, and mind. From now until this time tomorrow, we perform virtuous deeds with body, speech, and mind. And let's take refuge. The Buddha, the Dharma, the Song, the most excellent. We take refuge, enlightenment is reached. By the merit, generosity, and the good deeds, may we attain Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings. The Buddha, the Dharma, the Song, the most excellent. We take refuge, enlightenment is reached. By the merit, generosity, and the good deeds, may we attain Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings. Sange Chodai Soki Chonam La Janju Badu Dagi Gapsu Chi Dagi Jinsu Gipa Sonam Ki Dru Penshu Sange Drupa Shu. And the last one, the four measurables, the four great beyond measure emotions. May all mother sentient beings balance the sky of happiness and the cause of happiness. May they be liberated from suffering and the cause of suffering. May they never be separated from the happiness which is free from sorrow. May they rest in equity, free from attachment and aversion. May all mother sentient beings balance the sky of happiness and the cause of happiness. May they liberate from suffering the cause of suffering. May they never be separated from the happiness which is free from sorrow. May they rest in equity, free from attachment and aversion. May all mother sentient beings balance the sky of happiness and the cause of happiness. May they liberate from suffering the cause of suffering. May they never, never be separated from happiness which is free from sorrow. May the rest of that community free from attachment and aversion. Good. Come on, Tashi, don't bother Kate. She picked the one bad person in the group. That's difficult. There she goes. Yeah, that's great. Tashi, sit down. She's great. So, um, I didn't. Uh, the idea tonight was to to see what questions you have, um, and see what comes out of that. So it's an opportunity to ask anything you'd like about Dharma, which includes meditation, which includes just about everything. But I'm very very happy to ask, answer your or try to answer your questions, help you, um, and orientate your mind towards what it is uh, that. Uh, is Dharma. That's good. So, if you have any questions. If not, we can have tea. <laughs> Nothing at all? I have questions yes, on please. the retreat. Ah, if please. Sure. sure. Um, there will be teachings on Dharma. Uh, in the morning and the night, or uh, probably uh, it depends on the on the mixture of people coming. 
but there will for sure be a class every morning. There will be an afternoon session, which is more um, uh, physical, mental, yoga, qigong, feldenkrais to really get the breath and the awareness up, mindfulness. And the evening uh, will likely be a group meditation, plus maybe a dharma class with it. We'll see. That just depends on how we're doing. Sometimes too many, too many teachings is too much. Sometimes too little teachings. Oh no, <laughs> don't know. Yeah. yeah. It's also good to have the group um, come together and meditate. That's really nice. Some people really, really do well with that. Yeah. The the principle of the retreat and everything uh, that that I teach which I try to uh, maintain a very um, a classic a teaching of uh, Buddhist Dharma. It's actually very simple, but I repeat it a lot because it's very important to repeat, <clears throat> is the entire basis of Buddhist teaching is actually very, very straightforward. However, it, takes, it can take a long time for it to really sink in just does. However, the principles one can get very quickly, one can get good results very, very quickly, but it's very, very deep. And um, to reiterate, to, to say again <laughs> what, uh, what it is that we study and practice uh, is that the very base of all Buddhist teaching, even from the earliest teachings, well, so-called earliest teachings, uh, that are found in the Theravadan sutras. There's one sutra, very short, very pithy, that says uh, all minds are illuminated. The only thing that interferes are taints. This is this is extraordinary. Called the uh, Illumination Sutra. Very short, like this. And uh, after that, the the movement of Dharma has been more and more to uh, reveal that naturally illuminated mind. So all of the teachings of uh, Mahamudra, of uh, Zogchen, uh, you'll see it in the come through in the Mahamudra, in the uh, Mahayana teachings and so on, is really the statement, it's, and this is why we meditate, is that in fact one's, no matter who you are, doesn't matter who you are, uh, one's fundamental nature of mind is absolutely free of taints and is completely awake. That's it. So there's two ways of teaching. One is that we're suffering, which is how the Buddha first started teaching. We're all suffering. And we're confused, which is called attachment and ignorance. And that causes repeated states of suffering. So how to come out of that, there's a path out of that, which of which only one factor is meditation. However, in later teachings, the teaching shifts, doesn't ignore suffering, it just shifts more and more and more to where one finds freedom directly. And that's what for many people, I think in the West, uh, find uh, a bit more difficult, is that no matter who you are or how troubled or how difficult or how brilliant, it doesn't matter, uh, that 
ground mind, that fundamental nature of mind, is absolutely, totally, utterly free and radiantly compassionate, but just hidden. So what is all the meditation for? I'm giving you a synopsis of everything. So you don't have to come to the retreat. <laughs> no, you don't have to come to the retreat. But the, the basis of the retreat and all of the um, meditations um, uh, that are called the Dzogchen Mahamudra are based on that principle alone. And that principle is that the meditation becomes a meditation on that stainless mind. But one has to build the strength and qualities to be able to see clearly that natural stainless mind. And, and that little dog has it too. <laughs> but that's not really her concern. <laughs> Where is Excuse me for interruption. Uh, stain, how would you translate that? Stain the. Taint, stain, defilement. From the perspective of, of Mahamudra and Dzogchen teachings, there actually are no stains. There are apparent stains. She's past puppy, but she's staying like a puppy. You see, so I say it's it's actually simple, isn't it? It's not hard to understand. It really isn't. But but that's really the foundation for all um, Buddhist meditation. Um, that's, that's the fundamental reason why we meditate. Everything else follows after that. And really in that sense, uh, everything that we do, whether it's tranquility meditation, whether it's uh, building strength, whether it's building mental agility, whether it's uh, breath meditation, doesn't really matter what it is. But everything we do is, is really moving towards revealing very clearly, definitively, with absolute confidence, this stainless, um, untainted, compassionate, vivid mind. Everything rests on that. So if you keep hearing that, and you keep having that view and knowing where you're going, uh, then it saves a lot of time, because uh, you're not always battling with things you don't have to battle with. So I wanted to say that is um, is that's really what the meditation uh, retreat is about, and mostly what I teach, um, which is a very classic point of view. Um, when we come to things like um, the study of cause and effect, uh, there's many many teachings. There's there's um, as it says in the tradition, there are eighty four thousand teachings for the 84,000 types of beings, all kinds, because we're all so different. But really, dharma is dharma. It just depends on how you describe and teach it. And really, as people do suffer, uh, and they have very deep states of bewilderment and confusion, 
and uh, it's due to attachment. But actually, the only way to find out what that is and be free of it is you have to study the mind. So this is really simple. There's only one thing we have as an experience. We only have mind as an experience. All the objects that we experience are mind objects. If we don't find out what mind is, then we're always confused. Because we're always trying to move objects of the mind around, trying to get it right. But if we don't actually understand by direct experience what the mind is really like, then we always try to pick an object that will satisfy our, excuse me, our mind that doesn't feel right. But the mind always feels right. Only the states of mind don't. Let me give you an example from science. In terms of modern science, I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that if you talk to a physiologist, a neurophysiologist, a scientist, on, that they would say that the way you feel is the way you feel physically. In other words, how a person actually feels and what their mental states are like are rest on how they feel physically. As soon as they change physically, which we call mental, it's actually physical, we feel different mentally. But the brain was never designed to feel the physical. Does this make sense? So therefore, we, we, I, have mental experience when in fact the other part of the brain, way down here, has sensations. And we translate them into experiences of us. Make sense? So if our tummy doesn't feel well, we generally don't feel well. But underneath that, or over that, or under that, or through that, is the mind, our actual ground mind, doesn't change a bit. Only the sensations vary. So those sensations we interpret as emotion, as thinking, as cognition, and we call that us. But actually, it is in a space that's absolutely clear and compassionate and loving and open and spacious, and that's the way the mind is, even when it's not comfortable, even when it's not happy. It doesn't matter. So that's the subject of the retreat, is how do we find that? And that's actually Dharma. And uh, uh, the basis is the mind is already free. And many people that I've met, many, many people who study and practice or come to the teaching, have already experienced that. They've already had a taste. It happens, happens anyways. Most people I know just happens. Just suddenly, whoa, that's pretty neat. And then it goes. What is that? 
and how does one sustain that and how does one find that and how does one uh, train in that so that's the experience all day long all night long another way of saying this is it doesn't matter what the object is of the mind the mind doesn't change the ocean doesn't fundamentally change when there is a wave on the surface is that right <clears throat> the atmosphere doesn't fundamentally change when a cloud goes by or when there's lightning and thunder but we are bewildered constantly not our fault we're bewildered into believing that the object of the mind that is appearing in the mind is a real phenomena and a lasting phenomena and uh, is the way it is so this is really Dharma all the meditations really are moving towards that realization and then once you have the experience you have to wake it up wake it up wake it up you might I know people who have the experience of, of the nature of mind and still don't know what it is I met many people who've definitely had the experience of mind very nice beautiful people but they don't they haven't woken it up and studied it so it's actually um, what's the word something you can do with it uh, for instance if you went into a pottery studio there is a possibility if you went into a pottery studio and you took some clay and you put it on the wheel on the first attempt it would center you might get lucky it would center you might have a good teacher too it's wedged properly everything's right and it's centered and you make a pot yes <coughs> But that doesn't mean that the next hundred times you could do that. You see? Because you really don't know it from the inside out. You don't know it, how it really, what, what it is. So it's one thing to have experience, it's another thing to actually br bring it out, massage it out, massage it out, massage it out, massage it out. So that's what, we, that's, that's what the teachings are about. It's like squeezing uh, oil out of olives. Really, it really is. It's in there. You just have to get the press right to get the olives out. I can hit occasionally a good ball, Nathan, in golf, occasionally, but not consistently. You see? So to bring it about consistently so you really know that nature, that is why we practice and train. And we, we study, we practice and train. That's why we go to classes and hear the Dharma. It's the, it's the easiest thing to forget, by the way. I've known people in classes who've gone, oh my God, I have it. <laughs> really, literally, that's it, it's so clear. And walk out of the room and go, what happened? <laughs> When I got my car, what happened when I talked to someone? What happened when I tripped over something? What, what, what happened when I had to run the, the laundry machine or something like that? You know, what happened? So, so yes. Uh, uh, I didn't get uh, clear. Uh, if you say that the mental states are affected by our 
body sensation. So it's vice versa. Or it can. Yep. Yep. With, yeah. But it's always body sensations that uh, affect mental state. So it can be that because one will think that if one feels down, then you, know, you can get sick. From from the Buddhist meditation philosophy perspective, and from modern science. All mental states, all concepts, all mental states, all feeling, are also physical. So that my that mental is conjoined with physical, but not mind. Okay, so now, this is where it gets confused. Yeah. yeah. So we say we say technically. I mean, from a from a um, not a scholastic, but from a insight practice tradition. All consciousness, which includes mental states and feelings, are all conjoined with physicality. But mind, in its ground, in its natural state, is not subject. It's, it's, like, it's like oil in a sesame seed. It's interspersed, it's interpenetrated, but mind is never actually uh, ruined, corrupted, affected by any sensation of the body. This is very hard for people to believe. But this is the tradition. And it's been, it's been related by thousands of great meditation masters over and over again the same way. Absolutely, yes, correct. And we can prove that. It's really easy. It's actually really easy to prove. You've all experienced it, but you don't believe it. Is a moment of anxiety, a moment of anger, a moment of greed, a moment, any kind of state, and something happens physically or mentally, and within a fraction of a second, it's all gone. Even extreme pain can be gone within a fraction of a second, just like that, and you go, where was that? It's extraordinary, isn't it? So, 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 what's underneath all that? That's the question. What's underneath? So, this is not really, uh, even though we have to start with um, profound calm and tranquility, the purpose in the end is not profound tranquility, it's the tool to find the way the mind is when it's stripped of concepts, stripped of belief systems, stripped of sensation, just absolutely fundamentally shining, hello, shining in its natural state. So it turns out, um, by tradition, I say that because it's not just me speaking, that not only does this happen, this stripping out, this, this nakedness, this removal of taints, every single time you fall asleep, every one of us goes, gone. But when we die, when we fall asleep, take a nap, not necessarily. Sometimes a nap doesn't do it, but really deep sleep. When we transition from deep sleep to dreams, when we come out of those dreams, um, it's possible, it can happen if you sneeze enough. <laughs> a sneeze can do it. 
um, it can throw the, uh, the, uh, the connection between the physical and the mental so much that you can have this lucidity. Um, so can um, orgasm, and possibly, depends on who you are and um, training, and um, also um, in between the gaps between thinking. So it's, it's happening all the time, but it's not being seen. It's just not being seen. So, uh, so it's a question of how to see it, how to see it clearly. So that's it. <clears throat> in that sense, in, in, Buddha, in, Buddha, in Buddhism, all uh, mental experience is all sensation. Now, this isn't, this isn't very Western, because we have mental and physical. But actually, in the insight tradition of, of Buddhism, the Abhidhamma, the Abhidhamma insight tradition, Vipassana tradition, uh, all mental experience is actually listed as sensation. It's a mental sensation. But we treat it as, an, as, a, as a separate mental stratum that's not sensation. This, this I think, is the great difficulty. Um, we, need to we need to treat um, all experience as actually sensation uh, that is sensory. It has a sensory uh, element to it. Another way of putting this, which I think may be very useful for people, but it doesn't... It's interesting. You can ask a neurophysiologist or, a, or a, a, um, a neuroscientist this, and they'll say, absolutely, but, but the next second, it may not make any difference. All experience is data. Do you know what I mean by that? All experience is data. But all of us interpret the data differently. But it's just data. We get affected by the interpretation of the data, thinking that the interpretation is real. This is the bewilderment. And there's whole books written now in, neuro, in, in neuroscience on this point. But it doesn't talk about freedom. So in Dharma, we're trying to find the freedom in actually really having this experience so clearly, so real, that this clear, natural mind uh, comes through without fault and without concept. That's different than reading in a book and going, yeah, it's all data. It's all data. Question. When, when that moment occurs, when you have that emptiness and it's a sensation. Mm -hmm. I think I asked this once before, so I'm going to ask it again. When you reach for it, it's gone. When you try to duplicate it, it's gone. It's a very important question. It's very fleeting. The non the non sensation of the awareness, which is emptiness, 
can only be experienced by a conceptual mind. So we have an experience of the freedom of the natural mind, which afterwards gets translated into a concept. Into a concept. Therefore, we have to refine out the experience until we can dwell with the awareness that's empty with the awareness that's partial, so they come together. Until they come together. So, so normally what we do is we have an experience and then we interpret the experience. But the trace, let me put it this way, the effect, the physiological mental effect of that freedom leaves the trace in your nervous system and changes you from the inside out. Does this make sense? In other words, you're never the same again. Every time you have a moment of freedom, real freedom, every time you have a moment of emptiness, emptiness, compassion, not emptiness, emptiness, compassion, there's no, no such thing as emptiness without compassion. Every time you have a moment of that, your physiology and your cognition is changed from the inside, even if you don't know. And it doesn't matter what you say. You can go, bow, 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 bow. doesn't matter. You will be changed. <laughs> it just takes time to show up. It's like walking in the forest. You go, eh. Let's say you go to a place you've never been to before. And you walk in a beautiful forest. And it's, it's fantastic. It's full of different birds and animals. Yeah? You've never been there before. And afterwards you go, yeah. But you're changed. And it may take one or two years, it may take three months, it may take a month before you realize there has been <coughs> some changes. But if you're not trained, it's very slow. The more you train and the more you look and the more you see, yeah, you up the hours of training, the more the walk in those new forests have an effect on you faster and faster and faster. Does it make sense? But if you just do it occasionally, it's occasional. So the reason we train, we train, is to bring the, uh, the experience of that awareness, not, not just awareness, pristine awareness, closer and closer and closer to ordinary awareness until eventually there's no shred of difference. You see? So it's, it's kind of like this. Wow, what was that out there? Or what was that in here? Therefore, there's an experience which is transcendental, transcendent, transcendent experience out there or in here. And you go, that's amazing. That feels so good. But it takes training and understanding, uh, not intellectual, but, but, but also sometimes, to bring that experience closer and closer and closer and closer to every moment of normal experience until there's no separation. That, that's really what, what it is. So sometimes we have more emphasis on the emptiness side, that is emptying out the spaciousness, the, 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 the openness, the unobstructed nature, and sometimes we have more experiences of the compassion side. 
bit by bit by bit they get they get brought together bit by bit by bit by bit until they're actually seen as the same It's a bit like a golf ball and a club. <laughs> really, really, really. And the person that's, that is actually striking the ball. There's no separation between the ball, the club, the golf course, the sky, and the person that's hitting or striking the ball. It only appears that way. But when everything comes together, it's quite a magical moment, right? Absolutely. Absolutely magical moment. And you go, wow. And it actually changes you, doesn't it? It changes you. That's a beautiful moment. My goodness, how do we do that again? We have to find that unity again. But it feels like it's separated. So... Yeah. Is it okay if I interject something? I, I'm just thinking then, like going, taking that metaphor even a little bit further than like professional athletes would very often be in such a state. Or wouldn't they be? No, no. The experience of flow, the experience of endorphin flow, being high, mm -hmm. being blissful, being with it, is not the same as the, as the realization of the mind's freedom. Two, two different things. Mm -hmm. I was kind of looking so, at it so, more as yeah. those moments that yeah. you were talking about, like yeah, yeah. hitting the golf ball, mm -hmm. that that comes. And there, there is, like in these physical endeavors, anybody, anyone that you take it as a kind of mm -hmm. discipline, where all of a sudden everything just feels right. It's not a thing about about being yeah. strong or anything like that. It's about, you know, being about, it can be the gesture. Uh, yeah. So I, uh, I'm trying to kind of parse it out yes. in a way that it sounds like, you know, you are at one with this thing. And certainly professional athletes, you swing and you hit a yeah, ball. Yeah, I'm using way. that as a metaphor. Right. But, but that's as far as the metaphor goes. Because what we want to do is we, we still, if we, that we're following that metaphor, but that's how we come to it. But it's not the same as knowing how it is. That's a big difference. That's, that's a big difference. So here we have a unified experience, but we want to know its nature. That's the difference. So we say that enlightenment has a knowing aspect not just an experiential aspect. That's the difference. So we want to know what actually is mind's nature, not intellectually. That might help us. We want to know mind's nature from the inside out, not by having moments of unity, but by actually studying the mind in that moment of unity, not the object. That's the difference. Not the event. Not the event. We don't care about the event. Couldn't care less about the event. So when you say to a Dharma teacher, you have a meditation report, you say, then I was in nature, and I was, or I was having a cup of tea, I was in a Dharma talk, and the teacher goes, doesn't care. 
<laughs> I was walking. I was I was surfing. I was kite surfing. It was fantastic. And they're going, we don't care. It doesn't matter because it's mind. And it can happen anywhere, anytime. And it could be that even after a one-year meditation retreat, that clarity of the nature of mind and objects only occurs on the next day after when you're not trying and you decide to lay on your, on your bed. That happened to the Buddha's attendant, Ananda. Okay, so when the Buddha passed away, they were having a council meeting. The, the arhats, the enlightened beings, were having a council meeting. They said, to, they said to Ananda, you can't come because you're not enlightened. So I want to come. But you have to come because you've heard almost every discourse for the last 27 years, something like that. But you can't come because we don't trust your mind. <laughs> so after the Buddha died, he meditated very hard. And uh, it was when he uh, just kind of gave up. Not gave up, but he just took a break. And he was lying on his bed. It wasn't that he lay on his bed. It wasn't that he was standing. It was in between that he let go and experienced the full nature of the mind. And then they let him in. They said, yeah, you can come now. <laughs> it's interesting. And he didn't trust him. I said, your mind's not clear enough. Yeah. So, so um, it's when we, it's not just letting go. It's we need to see what this mind is, what it, what it is. And um, we can have experiences, but as Namjur Rinpoche, my um, um, root, main, uh, main root teacher, dear Namjur Rinpoche, he was very clear on this point. He says, not only do you need the experience of enlightenment, you need to know what it is. You need that knowledge aspect. So therefore, we have, we have uh, words, technical words, tradition, and one of the words we use for the knowledge aspect is we have the, the intuitive, unspeakable quality in, in Tibetan is called yeshe, which is primordial wisdom. You can't speak about it. You can go to your teacher and say, and they'll go, yeah, okay. Ooh, I agree. Or you go, okay. there's nothing you can say. But when it comes to description, we have another word, which is shara, which is the cognitive knowing of its nature, which is the ability to communicate, not just go. <laughs> wow. Wow doesn't help. Wow doesn't is not compassionate. Wow doesn't doesn't write books. Wow doesn't give pith instructions. I could sit here and you say, so what is it that we're practicing? <laughs> I said, well, he's happy. He's happy. You see? So the, the knowing aspect, the ability to, to, to teach, describe, the knowing aspect is the sheriff aspect. And these are the, the words used. And, that, and then the actual primordial aspect, which is unspeakable, but liberates. That is the yeshe aspect. 
But if you don't know what you got, it's good, it's okay. But the, the training is to know very clearly that, uh, to wake it up, as they say, to, to, to wake it, to, to awaken it. So it actually uh, grows, grows in dimension. I have a question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll use I'll use Danielle. He's a photographer, okay? But it can happen with anybody here. I mean, whether you're an architect or a whatever. When he's washing uh, and developing, there is a point that happens sometimes. I've seen it happen, and he he, he washes, and then he goes. And in his mind, that's enough. He goes, and he hangs it up. He goes, that's a, that's an empty space. But it's right? it's not the recognition of mind's nature. That's that's different. It's not the recognition of mind's nature, of what emptiness actually is. But it is that beautiful relaxation of the mind that allows. Such a beautiful, we all have, I think all of us know what this is like, such a beautiful perfection, such a beautiful naturalness, yeah? Such a beautiful unity. The right moment, the right time, the right space, perfect compassion, you know, all these things. But actually, the freedom comes by knowing that quality of natural mind, because that experience is still based on an object. We have to go to an uh, without any reliance on any object at all. So we call that mind resting in mind. So we use objects for so for instance in the case of Daniel Daniel, we could be in the studio developing prints again and again and finding that moment until we can use that experience to have no object reliance and now look at that quality of the mind in every single moment. That's the art. So therefore, in the retreat, we will spend the first half of the retreat doing exactly that, but without the printmaking without making the prints, without the gulf, like this. Learning to have that mind rest effortlessly and then look. See? And then look. It's that looking to find out what the mind is like no matter what is occurring anytime, any place with any sensation. So as Sherlock Holmes is often wont to say, you're observing but not seeing. This is, this is the beautiful line. Every, every episode, I think, of Sherlock Holmes on the television program says the same thing. Watson, Dr. Watson, you're observing but you're not seeing. So, so uh, we want to observe the calm mind, the unified experience, the openness, the compassion, but we still need to see what is behind all of it. 
That's called Buddha nature. That's called the wisdom mind. So you can theoretically teach meditation of tranquility and unity, the feeling of, of unity, through any device at all. You could teach it through photography. But pointing out the mind's nature, the natural abiding nature of the mind, this is different. This, this requires seeing what's there and not being attached to the objects of the mind, including the calm mind. That's the worst. The calm mind is the worst enemy of meditation. In the beginning, it's your friend. In the end, it's your enemy. Because it feels so darn good, you're not going to go any further. How's your practice? Great. What are you doing? Nothing. Why would you? Feels so darn good. You'll never go further. So uh, the, the teaching of Mahamudra and Dzogchen is to cut through, to uh, burst through, mm -hmm. to see what's behind it all. It doesn't matter what's happening. It doesn't matter what the sensation is. It doesn't matter what the experience is. So for instance, if you came and you said to me, I've had an epiphany, I've had a transcendental moment in making the print, I'd say, what is your mind's nature? Not the print. Not the perfect print. And my, my, the first interview I ever had with my teacher, Namjoon Pache, when I was a teenager, was like that. And all he said to me is, I really don't care. But can you do this every moment? Then we're talking. So he put my first interview as, as, a, as a student when I was a teenager, is he raised the bar because I brought him the same thing, the same kind of experience. There it is. He's, and I thought, well, that's good. It just happened to be a meditation. He said, can you do that any moment? I said, no. He said, well, when you can, then you've got something. I went, oh, I get it. Because <laughs> he, 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 didn't, he didn't want to know about the thing. He didn't want to know about the technique. He wanted to know, have you really got it every moment? That's, that's, that's different. Do you know its nature? Can you throw a pot perfectly every time, not because your technique's good, but because you know the mind? That's different. The freedom of the mind. That's different. So therefore, we say, eventually, meditation shifts from the object of the meditation to the way the mind is naturally. Therefore, that's what you meditate on. You no longer meditate on objects. You can meditate on an object, but it's not really the meditation. Did you see? We meditate on freedom. Yeah. It's a good thing. Yep. Can people be forced into this mindset by... Kicking them death? off a cliff? No, not, well, by near-death <clears throat> accidents yeah, or yeah, near-death yeah. experiences yeah. where mm -hmm. they think they're going to die and they finally succumb to it and they, there's this tranquility and then 
they miraculously live, but then they don't realize it until they come back to it through meditation. That's right. And, and sometimes they don't realize, uh, yes, the answer is yes. Uh, I've known teachers that have compassionately knocked their students into streams <laughs> without them knowing what was going to happen to try that. Oh, what's that? <coughs> or the kendo stick, you know? <coughs> the Zen stick. You come up to the teacher with a night's interview, and the teacher goes, very good. Very good. <laughs> so there, there's many, many things. You might feel like you're going to die. <laughs> but but uh, usually it's not recognized what it is until the instructions or someone directs the mind says, that's its nature. And you go, oh my goodness. And it becomes global. Not just the near-death experience, but wait a minute. Isn't that the way it always is? So that, that recognition is what we're looking for. So we're, we want to take the experience, death, sneezing, it doesn't matter, meditation experience, and actually it, the recognition means it opens up to where it's seen as, ah, that's the way the mind is every moment. It's actually dead. I'm trying to make a joke, but I, a serious joke. It's a joke. You could say in a very strange way, you're already dead. In the sense that if you recognize the mind, it's the clear light nature of the mind, which is the same experience of death. It just happens very quickly. And, and it's so fast at night that most people never recognize it. When you fall asleep, the transition is so fast, like that. You know, have you ever had that blissful moment when you fall asleep? Ever had that? Just that, oh man, this feels so good. And then you're gone. You're gone. If you can open that up and hold on to that without holding, without grasping, without this, and just relax into that, you are now residing in the clear, open, spacious nature of mind. That's what's happening right now. You're dead. There's just an ego going. So it is said... Uh, it is said in the tradition of Mahamudra Dzogchen that a really great practitioner, a really amazing practitioner, never experiences death. They just go from awareness to the same awareness. Not even a change. Because they've been practicing that so long that when they die, yes, they have physical sensations. You know, There's physical sensations when you die. They're big. It's tough, eh? Some of you have died, almost. You've all, some of you have come... Pretty close, you're done, yeah. It can be physically very challenging. I've had the wonderful experience of drowning. It's not so easy for a while until you give up. Then it's really great. It feels terrific. Yeah. It's really wonderful. Death is wonderful. So after you struggle and you go through all these sensations, then you enter this place of extraordinary radiance and illumination. But if you get fooled by the sensations, then the transition, and you don't have the training, the transition is very, very short, right? Very short. And then the mind just passes on. So we can also say that all of these Mahamudra and Dzogchen meditations are also to train for death. 
because then it gets easier and easier and easier and easier to make that transition. You're not fooled by the sensations uh, of, of, of death, which can be very difficult. Just like falling asleep. You know when you're sleeping? It's like, <coughs> oh. To hold the mind, being very, very tired and sleepy, is a real challenge. But it affords the opportunity to look at that, that mind, even though sleeping. So in the, in the uh, Mahamudra, in the Zagshan tradition, it says many times that uh, illness, uh, great illness, uh, difficult circumstances are the best uh, incubators of realization because they push you, they demand that you get your act together. They demand that you, 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 you cut through and not be fooled. So, so illness is, is a, can be a great teacher. But you still need the instructions. You still, you still have to have the instructions from somewhere. So in the Zogchen teachings, uh, of, of, uh, which I'll give in the retreat, of cutting through, of, of through-cut, treachery, it is said that uh, the worse it gets, the better your meditation will be. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's opposite. Once you've done the training of tranquility, now you want the worst possible situations to challenge your mind to see through the sensations. The worst golf game is the (laughs) best game. When all the chemicals aren't working and you've depleted the chemicals in the tank, that's your best opportunity. You have to make something out of it. If it's really easy, then you stay like this. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's true. Right? And you hold up a flower, but that was very nice. <laughs> there was a. Um, I only read this. It's not first-hand information, but there was a uh, a great saint. I'm not sure his name, so I won't say it because we're also being recorded. But uh, who? who was in a Chinese prison, a Tibetan Lama who was in a Chinese prison for many, many years. And I think he was actually tortured about once a week. And I think it might have been the Dalai Lama, who, or somebody interviewed him, said, what, what do you feel you got out of this? And what didn't you, you know, get? He says, my greatest difficulty is I didn't love my torturers enough. Mm-hmm. Enough. In other words, he was a great Zogchen practitioner, Mahamudra practitioner, and using this difficult situation because of his training to bring about more emptiness, compassion, not emptiness, emptiness, compassion. So he was using it. 
This man was extraordinary, by the way. If you've ever uh, uh, read his teachings or heard him, he, he uh, I just forget, I'm not sure which one it is, but he is extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. What a training. And he became a lineage holder while in prison. We go, I'm having a hard time out of prison. <laughs> he had a fantastic, not a fantastic time, but he did all of his practices, received all of his teachings from his teacher who was also in prison together and made the best of it. I once asked Antar Rinpoche, one of my great root lamas, I asked Antar Rinpoche, where did you receive the transmission of Mahamudra first? Where was your first transmission of Mahamudra? He said, well, we, when we escaped Tibet, we were breaking rocks. You know, in, in India, on the side of the road with a hammer or a sledgehammer, they break rocks. That's the road fill. They make it smaller and smaller and smaller. So he had no money, and he was there on a rock crew, breaking the rocks. This great lineage master, eight years old, nine years old, from Tibet, escaped with his life, and he's breaking rocks. Well, someone shows up who is from Tibet, eastern Tibet, and they didn't know who he was. And he shows up, and he's also breaking rocks. Over time, they find out that he's a holder of the Mahamudra lineage of the Drikon. So Antra Rinpoche, who's a Drikon practitioner, says, could you please teach me the Drikon Fivefold Mahamudra? The guy goes, sure. I have a lineage. He goes, great. So guess what they did? They broke rocks and lifted rocks, and Rinpoche received and practiced the Fivefold Mahamudra. We'd probably go, that was a terrible time. He goes, no, this is a good time. Terrible? Terrible. Difficult. But good. So we need both places of great tranquility, places of beauty, places to support, times to experience the mind clear, loving, compassionate, open, serene. And then we need to challenge ourselves. But first, First, we need to get find out what serene mind is like. Yes. Uh, you might have you might have mentioned this uh, before I, I came, but I just wanted to know what the relationship is between compassion and emptiness. Exactly the same, but not the beginning. For compassion to be full completely full and free, it needs to be absolutely empty of any taints of mind. So let's, let's just, it's really, it's really easy to get this. Full, effortless, stainless, spontaneous compassion can't have greed, hatred, delusion, pride and jealousy in it. Relative compassion can. We could build a new hospital wing completely out of jealousy and give $20 million. Totally. Uh, a, a country could be very compassionate and give money out of compassion to, to something 
completely mixed with delusion. But actually, it's really good. And it would be a wonderful thing. So when it comes to emptiness and compassion, the word emptiness means free of greed, hatred, delusion, pride, and jealousy. So there's not a taint at all. Therefore, it liberates. It not only gives food, it not only gives clothing, it not only gives shelter, it not only gives medicine, it liberates the mind. And that's called primordial awareness, which is emptiness and compassion simultaneous. Not relative compassion. But it rests on relative compassion. It must be there. The relative compassion and great love must be there. But when it opens up into a natural spontaneity of the freedom of the mind, then we're talking about primordial awareness as being compassion. So, so this is why generally I'm very cautious about saying the word awareness. There's awareness and then there's awareness. There's mind and then there's mind. They're not two different things, but it's very important to distinguish those two. Okay. So really what we're trying to do is we're trying to find primordial compassion, which is the way the mind is when it's absolutely free of any taint. Yes, that's, that's what it is. So all these Buddha figures, that's what they represent. Whether they have a form or no form, that's absolutely what they represent. They represent primordial wisdom, not awareness, primordial awareness, which is complete, utter compassion because it liberates. I, I, like, I have a new, a new term I've come up with. <laughs> I don't know where it came from, but the teaching of Dharma should be liberation upon contact. In other words, just hearing the possibility of freedom is liberation upon contact. It's like contact cement. I don't know. But it, it has that feeling of if you've just hearing it changes your mind. At least you've heard it. So in the Tibetan tradition, the waving of a prayer flag of Omani Pemihon, just the syllables, the vibration of syllables is enough to liberate. At some time <laughs> in the future. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. This is all about compassion. If it's not about compassion, it's not Dharma. And if it's not about compassion, it's not Dharma meditation. It might be meditation, but it's not Dharma meditation. Because unless it's mixed with compassion, at least a tiny bit, so what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring compassion and vivid awareness together so they're absolutely boundless, inseparable qualities. There's no separation. But in the beginning, there's a separation. That was a beautiful experience of emptiness. That was a beautiful experience of boundless love and, and compassion. 
They're the same. They're the same. The same nature. How am I doing for time? Pretty good. Okay. Some question. Pure generosity without ingratiation is pure compassion. Yes. If it's pure awareness of emptiness. Do you give purely without ingratiating? Yeah. And that's compassion. That's compassion. What we mean by primordial compassion is that not only does the generosity, not only is there no one being generous, no one to receive the generosity, and no gift being given, but the act liberates the mind. That's the difference. So relative generosity is giving, and it's beautiful. Transcendental generosity means whatever the generosity is, it's actually liberating the being. It's freeing up the clinging. It's exposing the being, the mind, to what freedom is. So, for instance, if you go to some people who go to a talk of the Dalai Lama, they can come away saying, I don't know what he said, and I don't even understand it, but I, see it, I feel fundamentally changed. You see? That's liberation upon contact. He's being very generous. But he's being very empty because he's actually not tainted. And because there's no taint, it has a way of just freeing. Freeing. What do you say there, Tashi? Yeah, good. Yeah, good. <clears throat> it's good to always hear what uh, meditation is actually for from the perspective of Dharma. I think that's important. Always hear this is actually what it's on about because we can easily get lost in the details. We can easily get lost in the technique and forget that this is to find out what freedom is. Or when we read prayers, we go, oh, more prayers. Oh my God, more prayers. Oh my God, more texts, more meditation. But they're actually the form to hold us in getting deeper to that place. That's what it is. Some teachers go like that, by the way. Wow. Near-death experience. My teacher's hitting me over the head with a text. Whack! I thought it was holy. In the in the uh, many of the Tibetan traditions, um, meditating in charnel grounds where bodies are burnt or chopped up is considered a wonderful opportunity for practice because it's so difficult to be around. Death is so challenging. Uh, dead bodies and death and blood and gore 
is so difficult uh, for people. But what a marvelous opportunity. Yeah. Good. Well, that's all good then. Yeah. Great. Well, let's uh, let's say a dedication. Just do a, a short one from, from here. I'll just read all of this. <laughs> just, just joking. Just joke, 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 joke. I'm joking. <laughs> uh, let's make a dedication and an aspiration. That means to all the awakened ones in the ten directions and three times, gurus, devas, and three jewels, all infant victors, as many as the grains of dust in a field, all of you please listen and pay heed to me. From now on, as much virtue as the virtuous actions perform in my and others' body, speech, and mind, equal space, accumulate through it the three times the stainless virtue existing from the beginning, it is dedicated to gathering the expanse of awakening, and arrive at the state of knowledge victors with their children. May the state of knowledge of the Sugatas be totally perfected. The great stages are pervaded by the demonstration of the wheel of knowledge and liberation. May the holders of those stages, having perfected their activities, carry happiness to the world and Dharma to all migrating beings. And may yogins be satisfied with the glory of the ten virtues, having purified all the suffering of samsara of the six causes. May we quickly obtain omniscience of complete Uddhavit, complete freedom and compassion. See you later. What a good time to go home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's right now. It's right. boring. You'll just hang out. Yeah. We'll just wait a little bit. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. Sir. So can you talk a little bit about how all these different techniques of meditation are a little, you know, we latch on to these techniques of whether it's daily practice or a mantra or that uh, Sure, would you like me to go on a little longer? Laurel has, has a very important question. Yeah. All these techniques, daily yoga practice, there's a lot. lot. There's 84,000 different <laughs> Dharma teachings for 84,000 different types of beings with 84,000 different Dharma teachers. It's infinite. Why all the different practices? It's really skill and means, but there is something that's important. If we want to go to primordial wisdom and find primordial wisdom, it gets very confusing and very difficult because we don't have the strength and the training and the merit, which is strength, to actually find that mind and know what it is. So. So almost all of the training 
is to get the mind so agile, so freed up, so conceptually lucid, radiant, luminous, that that awake mind shines through not just once, but more and more and more, and it becomes familiar. So this is a very important question. How do we do that? So it turns out that calm and tranquility is not um, alone, is not sufficient for finding the compassionate, awake, luminous mind. One needs pith instructions, one needs merit, one needs practices to open that up until there is infinite compassion merged with infinite openness and unobstructedness. And, and uh, that's what all those put why so many practices. For different beings. So if you receive one month of reading transmissions of practices from the Yangzab tradition in India, there's no way you're ever going to do all those practices in your lifetime. But they're meant to be shared so that somebody will find something in there someday that they will love and grow and go, that's what I want to practice. So you have people that say to their teachers, I've decided, and the teacher says, very good, I've decided to practice the Yangzab Zogchen Extraordinary Foundation Practices for the rest of my life. I'm going to do one 10 million. The people do 10 million of this. That's, that's like 15, 20 years. It's extraordinary, all day long. But somebody else says, you know, this one, the long life, deathless practice, this one really speaks to me. I love this practice. I'm getting so much out of this practice. Very good. You carry on. I think I'll do a million. You see? So, well, maybe three months or something, or six months. So, so these uh, teachings are all being disseminated because somewhere someone is going to do this one, this one, this one, this one, but some are really going to blossom their being. As a teacher, I will give out hundreds, maybe a thousand different teachings uh, transmissions in my lifetime. But I don't expect you to practice them all. Do you understand? Just a few. So these lineages have grown over hundreds and hundreds of years, and now they're vast. They're vast. They're huge. Doesn't mean you do all of them. But, it, but it's a beautiful blessing to receive them all as a blessing. But, but then you go into retreat and you just need to do a few. That's all. Only a few. The ones that really speak to you. Or you can do them all. <laughs> and if your teacher shows you, helps you, you can see that no matter what you do, they all have the same nature. There's two ways. One is you realize one, and then you realize all of them. You realize all of them, and it doesn't matter anymore, because whatever you pick up, you go, I love it. 
Oh, that's so beautiful. Did you, did you read that? I don't want to read that. I was on the other one. But look at this one. Do you see? Look at that. It is so beautiful. The teaching is so remarkable. And this one, and this one, and this one. This one. All, all works of genius. So, so there's two ways. The old, old way is you realize one thing, and that opens up to everything. Today, we're kind of doing, we do everything and realize the essence in, in all. We're not all like that. When it comes to what we're, we're going to practice, it's usually only one or two things in our lifetime. But to teach, we need to give out, out enough that people get training. And they actually know what they're doing. There are bodies of work that should be done by everybody because they ripen and they produce a activity strength in the mind that's really unshakable. So that's partly why. But to, to do everything, every single thing, I can't either. <laughs> My job is to get the essence of all of it, to teach whatever you need to have okay. so I can transmit it. But that doesn't mean that, that now if you happen to be close by me a lot, then you'll get a lot of transmissions. But that doesn't mean <laughs> but that doesn't mean that you do everything. You see? Is that does that yes sir? Uh, a question and a request. Are, are we getting any of those transmissions during the retreat? <laughs> Not all of them. <laughs> The, the, you'll be receiving transmissions of the tranquility exercises from Mahamudra and Zogchen, and then in the second half will be the uh, transmission of the three statements of Garib Dorje, which, which really actually is an empowerment, but it's given as a, tra as a reading, as, a, as an instruction empowerment. People say, oh, it's more teaching. No, it's actually empowerment. It's very high empowerment. There's different ways of teaching. Whether I'll give any more than that will depend on the uh, composition of the people in retreat and what's really needed. Well, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to keep it a bit away from a daily yoga practices. It's, I want it for, there's, all, there's different people coming, so I'd like to, to um, uh, present it in a way that's very accessible to a wider uh, audience. Could I request that you would do a, um, a reading transmission of the Sun Moon Amulet for us here in Antigua so we can practice that for sure. the rest of it? Sorry, could I just And I haven't I haven't given that here. No. Oh okay, very happy to. Be so very maybe happy we could to. do that. Um, I think we planned that. Well we have talked about it. Oh that's great. It, so I just thought I'd like everybody to have it. And the other yeah. transmission I'd like to give and it's also for for Gail, um, is um, the Vajrasattva Yangza. Is I did give it, I did give it, but Antrimbache, when I was, we were last with Antrimbache, I was having a meeting with him, and I was telling him that I was doing a retreat. He says, you know, I'm not sure I ever gave you the reading transmission of Rinchen Plinsog's Vajrasattva. So just in case I didn't, I'm gonna give it to you again, or give it, so he did, fresh. 
So I'm going to make sure now that you also have it because I now have it. He wasn't ever sure, even though he just expected it was done. He wasn't sure. So it's really good to actually know that you've had it and it comes unbroken from the 16th century. So it's really lovely. It has never been broken. It's always been practiced. And it's a very, very uh, famous text. And um, I, think it's, I think it's a work of genius. It's an absolute work of genius. So, so yeah, the answer is yes. You. you just have to just has to be scheduled. I'd be happy to. Okay. Happy to. In the for those that don't know, in the tradition of especially among the Tibetans, the Vajrayana traditions, um, but also others, uh, it is it gets considered very very valuable, the real thing, if you have a reading transmission at the minimum. That's never been broken since it was first discovered, revealed, or taught. And it carries a lot of weight. It does for me. I know that when I receive a reading transmission, and it actually, like the Ganchik, the teaching of Jitsun Sumon from the 12th century, one of his most famous texts, and it's been passed on unbroken to this day. Uh, and you receive it, from a person that holds that, unbroken. It has weight. It has, it has um, confidence in you that you're part of that transmission and you're not just picking up a book and reading a book. It's just like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. But you're actually hearing it. When one receives instruction on it, actually how you do it, that's even better. When you're in retreat, and you receive the reading transmission and the step-by-step instructions and the interviews with the teacher, this is, this, is, this is the best. It's really good. So sometimes we don't have time to go step-by-step, so we have a reading transmission. Yeah. Sometimes we have this and sometimes we have that. All right, depends on time. I think we'll finish it there. It's a good. Good note, yeah. And since we've already made a dedication and the rain has let up a bit, perfect timing. Thank you, Laurel. Thank you for that. Thank you, Laurel. 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 Thank you,